0: Welcome to Classical Etc., a show that dives into the philosophy, culture, and heart of classical education. You're in the studio with Shane Saxon. Well, on today's episode of Classical Etc., I'm sitting with Cheryl Swope, the author of Simply Classical, A Beautiful Education for Any Child, and Martin Cothran, who needs no introduction for anyone who listens to this, these conversations regularly. Now, if someone were to ask me, what are the two most important books about classical education in my kind of, you know, personal experience and and opinion, I would name two books. So I would name Climbing Parnassus by Tracy Lynn Simmons, a book that I feel like for a lot of people has not only provoked them to take classical education more seriously, but also to think about the role of Latin in classical education. And then second, I tell people this all the time, it's somewhat classical beautiful education for any child, not only as a book about special education, but as a book about classical education, maybe the only book length discussion of the distinctly Memoria Press version of classical education that exists. And it's very compelling, not just because of that, because it's also a great book. So Cheryl, let me ask you this question. In the beginning of Tracy Lee Simmons book, he has this quote, he says, The tireless study of classics has always been, to put it bluntly, an elite pursuit as a privilege of a comparative few. We should not skirt this fact. Classical education must not be patronizingly defended, must not be sold for its democratizing traits. So these two books, I think, are two of the most important books on classical ed. Can that quote coexist with your book?
1: Yes, it can. And I have read that book, and I also love that book. So, I address that in Simply Classical. Um, And by the way, thank you for having us. Yeah. Um, When we think about classical education, and I I had to think about this myself from my children, we have to distinguish it between something that Tracy Lee Simmons does. We have to distinguish this between um, a classical scholar... And mm-hmm. classical education. Mm-hmm. So, I think we would all agree that in our classical schools and our classical homeschools, we we don't have um, philologists. Mm-hmm. Is that the word? Classicists. Yeah. We don't sure. have people who will one day translate the Aeneid in the original language. We don't have exclusively those people sure. that we believe in a classical education because we're. We're sharing a body of knowledge, we're sharing essential skills, reading, writing, arithmetic, and in a classical Christian education, we're also pointing children to Christ. Those things are for any child. So, when we think about a classical education, I'm not saying that every child with Down syndrome or dyslexia or autism can become a classical scholar, But I am saying that many of the tenets of classical education can benefit any child.
0: Mm. So, Martin, in that quote, it seems as though Tracy Lee Simmons is trying to guard something that could be lost to kind of a radical democratization. What is he trying to guard our thinking about? And how does that relate to the special education conversation?
2: Well, I think he's making a distinction Mm. between scholarship uh, at, properly understood, and and edu- in a, in, edu- in classical education as 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 we're thinking about it, um, like Cheryl said. I mean, we're not we're not trying to train people to translate uh, um, ancient texts. Um, you know, that is among the best students. What happens? Mm-hmm. We we uh, here at Highlands Latin School teach kids how to they're, they're translating the Aeneid. Mm-hmm. But we're not training scholars uh, in, in in the in in the that elite sense. Mm. Uh, we are trying to take the products of scholarship mm. and the scholarship that had that has been going on for two thousand years, and we're trying to make that available in uh, to to a whole nother, uh, to to, a, to each succeeding generation of students. This was what was t- taught in schools. Uh, I mean, even uh, you go back—you go back 150 years, and uh, any school—and and, you know, most people didn't go to school uh, <laughs> 150 years ago. Sure. A lot of people didn't go to school, or only only went and basically got basic skills there. Uh, but they also got—even—even even in those cases, they got the basic stories of our civilization. Um, if if students did not know how to translate Homer, they knew the story of Homer because they had read it in English translations. Um, and so I think um, I think that uh, we're we're talking about a very different thing than scholarship. Sure. We're just talking about passing on sure. our civilization, sure. and I think that's what Tracy's talking yeah. about in, in his book.
0: And so it sounds like Cheryl, the point that both of you are making is actually a point that's cogent for a traditional neurotypical student or a, a student that has challenges with learning. Right.
1: Correct. And I think Mrs. Low, uh, I brought her this quote. Um, Mrs. Lowe said it best. She said, after she read Simply Classical, she said, a classical education is like climbing a mountain, each child benefiting from whatever vistas he or she attains in that upward journey. So when we start, we don't know how far the child's going Mm -hmm. to be able to progress, but we begin nonetheless.
2: And can I say something about (laughs) just a little story? You know, when we we don't accept many outside manuscripts for publication. You know, we 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 plan ahead, and we've got all these things planned to do. And we got we got Cheryl's in, and uh, I I, Tanya handed it to me, and I looked over the and I, I started going through it, and I'm thinking, well, this this is this is a book on classical education more than it is a book on on you know uh special education or whatever. and and uh i so I said she needs to really focus on the and in a way, I regret saying that because it even after she edited it and made it more explicitly for special needs education, it's still right one of the greatest books on classical education. Right. That has been printed, and I've often thought we need to go back to that original <laughs> manuscript. <name laughs> and <laughs> publish that <laughs> and put your name yeah. on it? Yeah, <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so you know, I it's it's just funny uh, that that's the way that happened. And still, even though it 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 talks about special needs education, it still is. And I've heard you know a lot of people say this about the book uh, that that it's that good. And you know, when you're compared to to climbing parnassus, you must it must be well good. it.
1: Uh, it is very gratifying because truly I said to my grandma, um, if it helps one family like ours, mm-hmm. then I will be satisfied. Mm-hmm. And I was just so grateful to Memorial Press for publishing it. But then, yes, you have people like Andrew Kern and Professor mm-hmm. Carroll saying, you must read this book. Professor Carroll told a group of hundreds um Run, don't walk to the Memorial Press booth. You can just imagine. <laughs> Run and get this book. <laughs> so yes, I've I've also heard it called a mother's defense. Hmm. It it um we're in a situation now in Our culture, where at least one in five are diagnosed with something. Now, why that is, I don't know. Is that overdiagnosis or these true difficulties? But they may be somewhat mild ADHD, dyslexia, seemingly mild, but those are real challenges in a classical school. So, um, and also in the homeschool, you have kind of this caricature of who fits in a classical education. And part of my reason for for writing the book was to give hope to people who would love to pursue a classical education with their children, even though they don't seem to be the ideal candidate.
0: Sure. So one of the things that really struck me about your book kind of branching off from this conversation is that you weren't just saying special education, you know, could incorporate elements of classical education. You were saying that this is what children who have these challenges need to be doing. That this is the best option for them. would you explain kind of how you arrived at that conclusion and then perhaps how that relates to alternative options like that you may have been considering when you were trying to determine what you're going to do with your own children?
1: There's a lot there. Uh, it is sort of a parallel purpose in the book because my, um, the book Simply Classical, my background was in progressive ed teacher mm-hmm. training. Mm-hmm. So I was comparing often what I was going to do with my children. But I think there are three things that a classical Christian education brings that a progressive education cannot. One is that you are truly transferring a a body of knowledge to children. So, this contrasts with experiences, projects, and things like that, that you may not gain a great deal of knowledge. But the the body of knowledge kind of approach I found in Memorial Press when we were homeschooling, we did uh, we taught Latina Christiana, I knew no Latin but the three of us together learned introductory Latin sure. and then we saw the fruits of that when we were studying English vocabulary I was able to drop our English vocabulary studies as soon as we were doing oh. Latin same with grammar so it streamlined things for us. Um, in a way that mere projects would not have. In fact, the projects would have taken me way more time. Sure, <laughs> but, sure. Um, so, the body of knowledge, also the skills, again. In the more progressive approach, you, we were taught invented spelling. So, um, you spell the word any way, however you think it should be spelled. That was sort of our approach. In a classical education, you're truly teaching them to spell, to... Uh, develop penmanship beautiful penmanship to learn their math facts to to read and to read well so the skills knowledge skills but then the third with classical Christian education is the leading them to Christ Mm -hmm. to the gospel to an understanding that they are loved they are made by God and they are redeemed by him in Christ that was the focus the the pinnacle the the apex of our education all the way through, and that fruit is the one that um, that I'm most grateful mm-hmm. for. Um, some listening may know that my son was very, very sick just this last mm-hmm. uh, about two weeks ago over the holidays he was in the hospital I was with him and uh, when he came home, he he said that he wanted his Christmas, well, he recovered, thanks be to God, and um, regained his speech, regained his thinking, and he said that he wanted his Christmas money to go to something that would last. True. And I think that um, it it is that understanding that we are forgiven that then leads us to serve. So, he wanted all of his Christmas money to go to the Ukraine, I mean, to Ukraine, where the gospel would be preached Mm. he said you know i could buy games a switch like my friends i could (laughs) buy movies but i want to do something that lasts yeah i believe his education was foundational in that and that's something that most special education programs can't give a child because they're held in a secular setting
0: yeah so martin kind of Cheryl's giving an individual example but it seems like we sometimes are thinking about the, the big picture and thinking about what is, how, how is classical education taking a part in cultural renewal? Wouldn't you say that this is a really kind of specific and important way that education can help us achieve that cultural renewal by providing education, high quality education that is actually effective for children with challenges uh, academically?
2: Well, I mean, the body of knowledge that Cheryl refers to there, there is a, Fairly coherent, pretty identifiable body of knowledge uh, that is kind of the common coin of education throughout. You know, I mean, ultimately going back a couple thousand years, but more specifically in the last um uh, thousand years, really, <laughs> with the recovery of education in the Middle Ages, um, and that the point I made about. <clears throat> That we're passing on a culture. What what you mean by you know you talk about cultural recovery? That's um, I a I think you said cultural renewal. Yeah. And I I guess that's a good. I, at first I was thinking that's not a good word renewal, but actually it is. I mean the the the, the that body of knowledge is just sitting there, mm. largely in our modern schools not being taught. Mm. So we have to kind of bring it back. Mm. Um, we've had several generations of education in this country when we have not been passing that body of knowledge along. Sure. So, you know, your, you know my parents, they, they got some of the basic stuff because, you know, my dad got, you know, in his little uh, one-room schoolhouse in the hills of South Carolina where they had three books, okay? Um, he got that somehow. Mm-hmm. It, it was, there were these common reference points that everybody had, and somehow they got that if not through a book, then through the knowledge of, of, of a teacher. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you get past that generation, and it, it gets very, very weak. And so we we have fewer and fewer common reference points. And what that means is that our culture is coming apart. Mm-hmm. And we're seeing that in a lot of different ways right now, I think politically and in other ways. Um, and the importance of that. And it's not complicated. That's why it can be taught mm. to special needs children. I mean, really, you take what Cheryl's talking about in her book. That's the same thing you need to be teaching to all kids, right, really. Right. I mean, uh, kids that don't have special needs may be able to do that at a higher level, sure. but it's the same body of knowledge. Right. That's the thing. And I've, I've used, in reference to um, Cheryl's book, I've used you know the analogy that uh, Mortimer Adler used to use in regard to the different ability levels of students and learning, and he talked about a big glass and a small glass, and he said, you know, a student who is, is very capable is represented by that large glass, and you, you pour the, the best, is he put it, you pour cream in that one, you know, and you get the, you don't pour skim milk in the smallest
0: hmm.
2: glass, representing right. the, the less capable student. Um, you, you even more want to make sure that what you put in there is mm-hmm. every bit as good, if not better yeah. than what you put in the larger glass, and uh, but it's the same stuff sure. that you need to be putting in both the glasses, and uh, so so that's why her book is such a good book on classical education is because really what she's talking about there is just cl- is just the the education we want for everybody writ small. Mm. Yeah.
1: Well, then I often quote Martin in talks that I give because he said this. He said, if a child cannot accommodate the amount or depth of knowledge of most children, it is not less, but more important that what he learns be of the highest quality.
2: I don't remember I said that, but I'll, I'll accept the. <laughs> you did. It's actually
1: in the, uh, <laughs> it's, it's in
2: your, <laughs> um, in your you endorsement. Yes, <laughs> right.
1: <But laughs> you really did say that. Yeah and and people appreciate that and the cream analogy people have That's referenced great. that.
0: Mm-hmm. So it seems like that principle is analogous to another little phrase that we use a lot around here and that is the phrase the Latin phrase multa non multum, much not many. Mm-hmm. Um Cheryl, will you explain that phrase, how it how it relates to the ideas in your book and your view of education?
1: It's um it is a wonderful phrase, and it's a wonderful tenet, and it saved me from trying to do too many things. And I think not just in education, but also in life, that it's the idea that we want depth and richness, not a mass quantity or a survey approach to to literature. We want to take a book, and we want to live in that book, as mm-hmm. Mrs. Lowe and Lee would say. So, that gives... That gives the family, especially if you have children with special needs, it, it gives, or the teacher in the classroom with little time, it gives you the freedom to just enjoy one really good book <laughs> at a time. So, that that helped me also, if I needed to only do Latin math and piano and literature, that that day or that week because of medical things or whatever i knew that that was enough because those things had had a depth in them of course starting also with the holy scriptures but uh, but those things were enough and if we were able then to come to come back to our science and history and and other things then so be it but we had we had done our our bible and our hymns sure. and our math and latin and our literature and those things were those things were sufficient.
0: Yeah, and I think I, I feel as though you, you've maybe written this somewhere or maybe you just said it, but that you see that phrase multa non multum as a way of life for you and, and your family. Is is that true and is it does it go beyond the education?
1: It does. We, we actually have a half day rule where we, if we do something for a half of a day, then the other half of a day, we will rest. We don't try to do too much because we're all kind of wired that way, really. My mm. husband and me, we have found that we benefited for, benefit from that just as much. And not everyone is, is bent that way. But for us, if we do something one full day, then th- say some huge outing or some big social event, then normally we need to have the next day pretty be pretty low-key. That has helped our family vacations. We went to the creation museum and the Ark. We knew we needed to do the creation museum first because we wanted to attend lectures. Like Dr. David Menton was their fabulous lecturer let my children look through the microscopes at the feathers. He did this, um, this thing called formed to fly. Mm-hmm. That was our focus was to make sure we got to that lecture. And then the next day for the ark, we knew they'd be tired. So we just let them sleep. And we went to the ark and enjoyed that on a much more low key basis. Just a, a little example, but yes.
2: Um, on the, uh, multum non multa idea the um, the the idea that because the problem in our in our culture in our education system in particular is disintegration Mm. that you have a bunch of random topics that are not necessarily related to each other in any evident way and there's never really any coherent attempt to explain how they are related and so I think that is that's that's the worst problem in modern education and in modern culture in general is this this problem of disintegration. You know, as uh, the poet W. B. Yeats said, "Things fall apart," mm-hmm. um, and and so that's 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 the thing we have to be pushing against constantly is this this disintegrative tendency in things, and this is why a coherent curriculum is really important. Um, I mean I think you see among classical students they're learning all of these things and then they're starting to relate things as they get older in their education so that they can see that this is this is this is all connected uh the 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 world is um, is 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 not just a world it's a cosmos it's it's a bunch of things, but they all relate to mm-hmm. each other in some way, and that's something that just doesn't happen
0: no. in modern education. And you would say that a lot of what causes that is trying to do too much, so you yeah. can't get to the connections,
2: right? Or or not studying the central things and and really mas- mastering. There are central subjects, and uh, you know, and if you don't study those, and you just have all of these you know random topics that populate a modern curriculum then you're you're not going to have you're not going to give your children any sense of the fact that that everything in this world is connected in some way sure
1: right because that randomness is inherently disconnected right. so we we saw the connectedness when uh, our children were right around 14 15 it was it was a wonderful thing to start seeing it was i think narnia is when it was like literature and fantasy and and Christianity is all coming together, and, and my son was having these insights that were just remarkable that I would never have expected back when we were just first teaching him to learn to read. Sure. But it does, it bears fruit in the end.
2: Yeah, and, 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 and Christ, in a classical education itself is the product of a coming together of two great traditions— Uh, the Hebrew tradition of divine revelation and the Greek spirit of rational inquiry Hmm. brought together in Christianity. Um, And and so that's, you know, and, and there were hundreds of years where that was all worked out and to see how do these things relate? How do they come together in one thing? And that was the great intellectual project, intellectual and spiritual project of the West. It's what made Western civilization and classical education is what comes out of that. It's sure. the articulation of all the implications of that. Yeah. And so it's, it, it is naturally integrative.
0: Oh. So a lot of that integration um, over the centuries occurred in the language of Latin, right? Yeah. And in, it's one of the reasons it's become such an important part of classical education today. So Cheryl, I sometimes feel crazy telling normal, you know, everyday people with don't have extraordinary challenges Hey, you should learn Latin and your your kids need to learn Latin. You have been a defender of Latin for children with special needs. Could you make that defense? And, and how have you felt making that defense over the years? Are you so convinced now that you're not even worried about uh, the responses?
1: I tend to avoid words like should and must because... What I, what I truly believe is that we are freeing parents to understand that they can, mm-hmm. that they can do mm-hmm. this. So, that helps because I don't yeah. feel as if I'm making it an imperative. <laughs> the, there are some smaller studies that indicate that the children, even with learning and language-based disabilities, benefit in their native language from learning Latin. Those studies show not just vocabulary but also their facility with language that's uh, that's a boost that's some some evidence there's there are some researchers Sparks is one of them where they have studied these sorts of things, Latin in particular. so that's helpful but then also too, like I said, that streamlining is really important because mm-hmm. you do have you do have time limitations you have stamina limitations for children often children with special needs when when you have a child with dyslexia they're they're working so hard they're focusing so hard or a child who has attention difficulties that they're exhausted after several hours so if you can do anything to streamline your curriculum that helps we do suggest that we start a little later with Latin, sure. after phonics are good and solid. And sometimes that takes longer. Sure. So, in ours we have Simply Classical 1, 2, and 3 that are focused on reading fluently in English. And then by the time in our Simply Classical curriculum, that is, when we get to level 4, we start with Prima Latina. And then we take longer to cover Latina Christiana. I needed to with my kiddos, so we... We eventually get to covering first form Latin in Simply Classical, the sure. curriculum, but that's that's all. So again, but that's okay. Yeah. The, the amount of Latin that we studied was less, but it was no less beneficial. Sure.
2: And this kind of brings us back to your original question mm-hmm. about, okay, so... If, if if you're not teaching, trying to, to develop scholars, then why are you having them teach? Yeah. That would have been the first question I would have asked. Well, you know, you, have, you kind of have to look at the history of education in this country in the last 200 years to really understand that, where you had up until the end of the 19th century, um, in order to read Homer's uh, Iliad and Odyssey or Virgil's Aeneid, you had to know Latin and Greek to do it because they're— really weren't many English, transla- English translations only come in of those books at the end of the 19th century, really. And so that's what you had to do to read those books. Right. But uh, since we have the translations, kind of part of what that brought about was the whole questioning of, okay, so if we have all these English translations of these books now, why are we teaching English and Latin in the schools? And this is one of the things that brought down classical education, uh, in the early part of the twentieth century, was that question and the inability of the really smart scholars to defend themselves on that because and they finally near the end of the debate realized what their argument was, but right. it was too late. And the argument was, it develops the mind. Sure. Yeah. And they and they didn't have the research to prove it either right. by then either. Uh, we 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 really kind of know this now that that studying a language like Latin, which is very structured. And organized and uh, and systematic, that that helps make your mind organized, right. and structured, and systematic.
1: Yes, I mean, and you know I'm largely anecdotal here, so and I understand that. But um, but I remember my son Michael. He said Latin takes my boggled mind and sorts it out. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, and it, it is the Latin and math for both of them. I knew that my daughter who has the math disability. I knew that she was not going to become an engineer, a mathematician, sure. a carpenter, any anything related to math. Mm-hmm. But it was the discipline of the mind that that was so important, and still is. They both still. Well, um, the,
2: the Latin math comparison the, is important yes. because you could ask the same questions about math: Why are you doing math? That and you people do about Latin. People do right. and, uh, as about Latin because if you want to know, you know, people people are out there talking about critical thinking skills. They have no clue what they're talking about, but they promote it. Um, and the, the bottom line answer to the question, how do I teach my kids critical thinking skills, is teach them Latin and math.
0: Mm. And, and any and child. Literature. That, any that child. Critical that that, yes. mm-hmm.
1: Any child, correct. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So you you just brought up literature and I think that's gonna factor into our our final question here. One of the things I've always admired about you, Cheryl, is that you do seem to be aware of much of the medical research and the and the terminology and you've been you've taken, in my opinion, maybe you're doing more than I, I see, I'm sure you are, but a much not many approach even to your intellectual interests. That you've you've gone deep into special education and, and incorporating that was with uh, classical education. What should the role of medical research be in how we think about educating our children? I I think some people might accuse classical educators as being anti-science sometimes, which we're obviously not. Um, But that accusation does get levied. So how do we think about this? How do we think about, you know, the other ways that we come to understand truth like literature and, and beauty? Um so yeah what do you, what do you think of that question
1: Well first we're definitely not anti-science there's the trivium there's the quadrivium and thankfully that's all being developed now not just um, in theory in in our in our writings but also in our schools so uh, I hope that we will not be defending that Accusation that we're not just the humanities, never have been. It's always been a very, as Martin would say, balanced. We have the mathematical languages, which include science. We have the language arts. We have, I'm sorry, the mathematical arts and the language arts. But um, to your question about medical research, I think it's really important. I work with schools, too. One of the questions is often, why should we give some students more time on their tests than others. How is that fair, for example? Well, there is some medical research that shows that children who have a processing difficulty, difficulty thinking quickly and processing information and then getting it out, whether it's auditory processing or visual processing, they benefit from extra time on test. Mm-hmm. However... The average student doesn't. If you give two hours for a test, most kids will end up dawdling or or it just it does not benefit sure. the average child. But the child who has processing difficulties truly benefits from that extra time. So, what some of our classical schools have done is to provide a testing center mm-hmm. or a resource person who can do tutoring, small group instruction, but she can also provide a place where a child can take a test for 45 minutes, mm-hmm. also in quiet. A lot of students with attention difficulties, they need, they're distractible. So, they just need their, their headphones, their quiet place, they can take the same test. It's the same body of knowledge and yet that's that's a helpful defense to parent to the other parents who who are saying, well, why can't my child have that? And usually the the adept headmaster will say, if your child needs that, then that's what we'll provide. Sure. But if he doesn't, we don't want to be giving him something that will actually hold him back.
0: It seems like both of you have cultivated some wisdom and ability to navigate this data and these studies in a way that I think some people find difficult. You know, you, Martin, you've written about this, the, a study has shown fallacy. That's, that speaks to your kind of wisdom in approaching the different onslaught of data. Could you both just give some advice to educators and parents who are trying to sort through that data? How can they cultivate wisdom when they're approaching information?
2: Well I mean I would say that you just have to be very very careful I mean there's a lot of literature coming out now on the problem uh, in the sciences with research um, there was a book by that came out by Richard Harris uh, and I'm blanking on the name of it but he was a, the science reporter for national public Radio for many years and um he he made the he makes the point of in talking about the the replication crisis that you have all these studies out there that it was just one study and it was never redone to make sure that it was legitimate. Um, most studies over 60% of studies that are replicated are found to be faulty. Mm. Um, but we don't know that because they just throw them out there. And, and of course the average layman does not know that, sure. but I mean, he, he's pretty, he, he documents the problem that even in the hard sciences, he's talking about biomedicine and, uh, and how uh even in the hard sciences, the research is bad. Hmm. And then you get into the softer sciences, you get into psychology, where only 5% of studies are replicated in psychology and education, where 0.13% of the studies in education are, are even replicated, hmm. which is the basic research criterion. So just because there's a study on something out there, you you really can't conclude anything from that unless you look at that study, see if it's been replicated. You know, there's a, There's a lot of... Of of hurdles that uh, that that good research has to has to jump and most of them haven't gone through the process. Mm-hmm. So we, we get, we're very credulous about you know that that whole uh, study has found problem.
1: Right. And I think too, that the, in the soft sciences, it's difficult to replicate because you mm-hmm. have the human factor mm-hmm. you have the, the child, but you also have the teacher. Mm-hmm. Does the child love the teacher? If he did, would he be doing, a, would he be responding differently? Sure, sure. And all of those things are impossible to measure through, through studies. So. Yeah.
0: Well, I've really enjoyed this conversation for anyone listening to this, who has not read some classical Cheryl Swopes book you you should you absolutely need to so so purchase a copy. Thank you both for having this conversation. I really enjoyed it. Thank Thanks. you, Shane. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Classical Etc. You can find us on Spotify, Apple Music, or wherever else you get your podcasts. If you like this episode, consider leaving us a positive review and sharing it with a friend. A huge thank you to the Memoria Press Podcast Network for hosting our show. Be sure to check out all the great podcasts there. As always. I'm Shane Saxon. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time. You've been listening to the Memoria Press Podcast Network, providing a classical Christian perspective on the world of education. To learn more about Memoria Press, visit memoriapress.com. To connect with us, follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.